This is EM Cases EM Quick Hits Podcast. Quick, let's get on with it. EM Cases is part of SHREMI, the Schwartz Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute. That's the nonprofit organization dedicated to improving EM care through high quality research and education. The opinions expressed on this podcast are intended for general information and educational purposes only and should not be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified practicing physician. Unless stated otherwise, the opinions expressed by the hosts or guests are made in their individual capacity, not on behalf of the Institute nor Medicine Cases. It's great to have back on the show a veteran emergency medicine cases expert guest, Dr. David Carr. That's great to be here. Always great to be in person with you. Always great to see you. So we're here at EMC Studios in Toronto, and we're not going to give it away at the top here. Dave's just got a case for us that we're going to have a little discussion around. So go for it, Dave. Yeah, you know, I saw this case, and it's funny the way my mind works is, I finished my shift, I saw this case, and my first thoughts were, I got to tell Anton about this. And I thought, this is something I did a lot of reflection, and I thought it's a good thing to get out there. So I'm working a shift. I'm the morning doc. It's quiet, which is a nice thing these days. And uh, I see a patient before the nurse does. So essentially, they're just brought into a room, not even in a gown, no bloods or anything there. And uh, I read the triage notes. You know, it's electronic. So I, I read the note before I go in. And it says, 73-year-old man, sudden onset of right flank pain at uh, 6 in the morning. And granted, this is now 7 in the morning, 7.30 or something like that. So past medical history, it says MI and renal colic. He was taking aspirin, was his only medication, no real oral anticoagulants. And I, I looked at his vitals, you know, couldn't be more textbook, 120 over 80, heart rate 70, SATs 100%, temperature 36.2. Rest rate 14. So I, I kind of already have a sense of what's going on. And I go in the room and I meet a really stoic guy. And I, I think that's really important and we'll get there afterwards. And, you know, I kind of take this history and I said, like, what happened? And he said, you know, I was sleeping. I was fine last night. I'm retired. I don't do that much. I'm not that active. And at 5, 530 in the morning, like I woke up with severe pain. And, you know, I had a kidney stone three, four years ago on the same side. So I kind of knew what the pain was. I took a Tylenol. It wasn't really helping. And the pain's really severe. Um, and you could tell this guy was struggling. So he came into the hospital. All right. So, so far, this is not a very exciting <laughs> case there, Dr. Carr. I mean, so you got a guy with renal colic. So, but you got a urine, you got some bloods, uh, you give him an NSAID, maybe some morphine. Send him off for the CT renal colic protocol. Yeah, 100%. Look, you know, I think we're old enough to say that we didn't train in the POCUS area, but this is a good guy to POCUS. You know, he's 73, 74. I'm going to just look at his aorta, look at a fast. I get, you know, he's a thin guy. I get really good looks. Fast is negative. His kidney looked fine by me. I didn't see obvious hydro, but I'm not like a POCUS Jedi, but it looked okay. And I got a great view of his aorta, like definitive scan, like there was no aneurysm. So I'm feeling pretty confident, like pre-test in a guy who's had renal colic, you know, he's not 30, but I got a good pocus. He's had renal colic, says it feels exactly the same, same side, same pain, tortal, dilated, lights, cratting, CT goes to the next patient. Sounds perfectly reasonable. So where's the surprise here? What happened? Yeah. So scanning through the lab. So CBC lights, creatinine, normal. Urine dip said trace, which was kind of like, okay, that's weird, but whatever. And, you know, not everyone has obvious blood. And then I look at the CT. And, you know, sometimes these CT renal colics can be very elaborate, and sometimes they can be very brief. No evidence of nephrolithiasis, no evidence of hydronephrosis, no cause for patient's pain seen. All right. So now we've got to start scratching our heads a bit. So what could this patient be? So you took a look at the POCUS. And there's no obvious AAA, so you've pretty much ruled that out. But there's a list of other things that I'd want to think about at dissection. This guy has had an MI in the past, so he's certainly got risk factors for a dissection. But his, his vitals don't really suggest that it's a dissection. But sure, you could have perfectly normal vitals with a dissection as well. What did you do next? Well, I, I mean, Anton, if you just reflect and think about how many patients with negative CTs you've seen in your career. I mean, I don't know what your hit rate is but I don't bat a thousand. Like my first thought is he passed a stone because he has renal colic and the CT didn't show it. It must have passed. Yeah. So, you know, I find at, at our shop, the radiologists are really good at 
mentioning on the report if they think the stone has passed, because usually there's a little bit of hydro or there's some minor changes on the CT in the ureter that they can tell that it's passed. In this case, the radiologist didn't mention anything about that. Eh? So short-winded report, like not like they're commenting on every incident of finding, but certainly there was no mention of that. Okay. Now that doesn't, to me, mean it doesn't exist a possibility, but I hear what you're saying. So obviously it means reevaluate, right? So I go in and my first set is, how are you feeling? Thinking, hoping that he's going to say it's all gone. Because then if it's all gone, I feel great. So, you know. And I can't say enough, like this is not a guy asking for meds. This guy is not allergic to everything but Demerol back in the day. Like this is a guy who, when I asked him how he's feeling, he just said, did you give me anything for pain yet? Because I'm not feeling better. I might be worse. So I know, and I'm telling you, I mean, we do a lot of judging of people. I know he's legit. And now it's like, okay, what am I missing here? So I'm going to take a bigger history. You mentioned dissection. You know I love dissection. So I do a, like a dissection history physical pocus. So, you know, with pocus, I get to look at his pericardium. I look at his aorta. I do supersternal looks. I get good views. I don't see an, a flap. I ask him if he had any chest pain plus one. You know, I know what type B dissections, you're going to have more back and flank, but he's got nothing in the abdomen. It was only there. And I ask him, like, have you had a cough? Have you had a cold? The other thing I think about is like, maybe you have a PE and you've just infarcted your lungs. So do you have any DVT or PE risk factors? Are you having chest pain, shortness of breath? Do you have pleurisy? Does it hurt? You know, and if you think about it, I feel like every person who has a negative CT who I quit on, I usually just say you have back pain. You have back pain. So I'm like, does it hurt when you move? Are you sure you didn't lift furniture yesterday? Yeah. So we've got some red flags here. We've got a guy who's very stoic. He's still got severe pain despite Toradol and morphine. So we got to keep on looking. You know, especially if there's a very brief report, the first thing I'll do is call the radiologist, have them take another look. I think that's a great suggestion. And that's exactly what I did, which is, can you take a look at maybe some reformats of his spine? Maybe he has a compression fracture. Maybe he has a rib fracture. Maybe you see a dissection. And, and, you know, the second I went to dissection with the rad and he said, well, Dave, you know where this is going, Anton. Without contrast, the limitations are such that I can't tell you. But his aorta looks pretty good. And it doesn't look very atherosclerotic, but I wouldn't be able to tell you. But he takes another excellent look and he's an excellent radiologist. And he says, your CT is clean. There is no cause here for his pain. If you're worried about this guy, you know what you have to do. All right. So now we haven't completely ruled out a dissection, but it's less likely. We've ruled out a triple A for sure, because he's looked on the CT and you've looked on the POCUS. Pulmonary embolism doesn't sound like it. What are some of the other things? So for me, whenever I see someone with renal colic, I think spine. I remember a patient I had at Janus General about 10 years ago who presented at triage Chief complaint, flank pain, resident saw, diagnosed with renal colic, sent for a renal colic protocol. I went to go see the patient, asked them if they could move their legs. They couldn't move their legs. Final diagnosis, a spinal epidural bleed. And the patient ended up going straight to neurosurge and unfortunately not doing well. So spine is something we should always think about. That's one thing. Did this guy have any neurologic anything? No. And of course, like, then I start thinking MSK. So, you know, I do an excellent back history. I convince myself, you know, bowel, bladder, saddle, IV, drug use, fever, cancer, history, a great exam. And, you know, this pain is not worse with movement. He can touch his toes. He can twist. He can bend. Nothing makes it worse. Like, I, I convince myself it's not MSK back pain. You know, for lots of these negative renal colics, you're like, oh, you know, you're a construction worker or you're a laborer or you're lifting some sacks or shoveling snow. It really hurts a bit to move, but you add some hematuria, maybe we'll light you up. This guy had, doesn't have back pain in the sense that it's not MSK back pain. I really believe it's organic. He's not midline. I totally agree. I'm thinking, you know, remember, we always teach people to rule out life-threatening causes. Renal colic's not a life-threatening cause majority of the time, you know, apart from septic stones. I, I mean, I'm doing everything on this guy. I, I do an ECG on him. You know, maybe I'm missing ischemia, maybe something atypical. His ECG is normal. He's in sinus. I, I add some additional blood work, tropes, COVID tests, LFTs. I didn't dimer him because I really didn't want to go down that rabbit hole. 
All right. So we're talking about the differential diagnosis of CT renal colic negative flank pain. We've talked about PE. We've talked about AAA. We've talked about dissection. We've talked about spinal causes, whether it's a bleed, infection, fracture, cauda disc, what have you. I'm not sure what's left. Yeah, probably some infectious causes. Like if this guy had a fever, I would think about endocarditis with emboli or something like that. If it was a, a, a woman, I would think about gynecological and maybe a ruptured cyst or some ruptured mass or something like that. But yeah, infectious, inflammatory, vascular. I mean, I think, look, the big ones are going to be vascular. It's going to be the aorta being a triple A or dissection. That's the stuff you don't want to miss. But I, I don't got any of that stuff, but I haven't closed the books. And I think based on that story and this person, I had to light him up with contrast, send it back to the table. Fair enough. Yeah. You never know when you could be missing that dissection. So you lit him up with contrast and was it a dissection? <laughs> so I did a dissection study and, you know, I love getting calls for the radiologist because there's two reasons you get a call. One is the tech has refused to do the CT because the creatinine was high. But this guy's creatinine was like 70, so no issues there. Uh, the other one was he's going to call to tell me something interesting, which he did. So the rad calls me and he said, Dave, he has a left renal infarct. He's taken out 25% of his kidney. And the rad said, I even discussed this with our interventional people, and he's not a, a candidate, but he doesn't have fibromuscular dysplasia. He doesn't have a dissection. He's just got an embolic left renal artery infarct presumably embolic. Well, let's talk a little bit about renal infarcts then. I can remember maybe two cases that I've diagnosed kind of incidentally of renal infarcts in my career, but it's something that should probably be on our differential diagnosis of plain renal colic CT negative flank pain. And my first question to you, Dave, is why, do we, why would we care about renal infarcts anyways? So- it's such a good point. It's, it's the reason why I bugged you and said, let's chat is because it's a real opportunity for secondary prevention because an overwhelming majority of these, when you look at them are going to be embolic and you could send this guy home and say, it's probably just your back. And in a couple of days, he'll believe you because he'll have taken out the blood supply of that area of kidney and he won't have any more pain. He'll feel a lot better. He'll have just lost a quarter of his kidney and it won't affect his creatinine because the other one presumably is okay. But what will be unbeknownst to him is what was the cause. And if the cause is embolic, then when he has that big embolic stroke from that undiagnosed AFib or paroxysmal AFib or whatever else is going on in his heart, he'll stroke out and he won't remember you because he won't equate the fact that his renal infarct and cerebral infarct are related but they are. And it's a missed opportunity. And I want everyone who's listening to this to think about every single person you've seen with a negative CT with renal colic where your pretest was high and maybe you didn't believe their pain because of their personality, or maybe you were busy as it was the end of your shift. But sometimes we just anchor and we rule out the diagnosis that we think it is, but it's almost like egotistical or it's almost like this confirmation bias where it's like, okay, it's not renal colic, I'm done. But you can't always be done here. So the bottom line there is, even if you've rolled out an obstructive stone and you've rolled out a AAA on POCUS or CT, I mean, that's something I call the radiologist about as well. Sometimes they don't mention anything about the aorta on their CT report, and I'll call them back. You're still not done, and this renal infarct thing is a thing, and it is important to pick up because... Not necessarily that we pick up the diagnosis and treat it, but it's the secondary prevention because later on down the road, they will end up with a stroke or some devastating thromboembolic event. So Dave, could you just give us like a quick review on renal infarct, how common it is, what symptoms should we be looking out for, any workup that we should do differently? I mean, we're not going to be doing a CT with contrast on everyone with flank pain, but when should we really suspect this diagnosis? You know, people will talk about this being rare and you'll hear estimates of like seven per 100,000 to put this in perspective, dissections about two to three per 100,000. But when they've done autopsy studies, it's exists in 1.4% of the population. And they also will look at patients with AFib 
And we'll look at patients with lifelong AFib, and a couple of percent of those people will also have had the existence of renal infarct. So I think you have to look at a few things. You'll have to look at people who are hypercoagulable. So obviously, we think about AFib plus abdo pain as ischemic gut, but AFib plus flank pain is ischemic infarct to the kidney. And the other really cool thing, which I just came across in reading, was when I redid the patient's labs, added the trope, which was normal, his LDH was sky high. His LDH was like 700 plus. And one of the really cool things that you see in renal infarcts, over 91% of them will have sky high LDHs. And LDH is a marker of ischemia and infarction. But we usually think about it as part of our liver function tests. But when you see an LDH up where you don't see the bilirubin, the ALKFOS, the AST and ALT up, you have to say that isolated LDH cause in a patient who's not hemolyzing and they got flank pain, that may be a great clue. Now, the challenge is how many people with suspected renal colic even get an LDH? So when would you actually pull the trigger and order an LDH in a case like this, where we actually see quite a few cases of maybe older patient, maybe a few cardiovascular risk factors who comes in with a renal colic sounding story and a negative CT renal colic. So LDH is one of those things we should think about. Okay. And then what else do we need to know about renal infarcts? Yeah. As I said earlier, you got to think about what's causing this and probably what's going to cause this. It's going to be an embolic or thrombotic event most of the time. Obviously, vascular problems, your dissections, your marfoid patients, your triple A's, any infectious kind of things. We think about endocarditis with septic embolize to the kidneys, even weird stuff like syphilis or TB can infarct. And then there's going to be a lot of other autoimmune things like polyarteritis nardosa, tachyasis, things that are kind of beyond the scope of what we're doing. But I think the big ones for us is realizing that people at risk for hypercoagulable states um, who might have a clot or people who might have AFib, those are going to be your big things. And look, people with heart disease, I mean, this guy is 74 years old, had a heart attack. It's not uncommon to think that he's having runs of AFib just based on his age and his demographic. All right. So this patient got admitted to internal medicine, seen by nephrology, urology. What what, what happened to him uh, in the end? Yeah, he got tellied. He got echoed. He got haltered. He got hypercoagulable workup. They found nothing. 29% of the time, you will find no cause. But this guy is now on an oral anticoagulant probably for life. You know, he felt better in a couple of days after he completed the infarct. His LDH came down. I mean, he went home anticoagulated and ideally preventing something else. He'll probably one day in his life have a run of AFib. It just wasn't caught, right? Great. You saved a stroke there, buddy. Good work. I think the crazy thing and that most humbling thing of emergency medicine is that I often think emergency medicine is what you ate for breakfast. Some days, for some reason, you meet someone who just impresses upon you that something's wrong with them. And the next day, it might not work that way. And I think the crazy part is... I sent home, I guarantee you, lots of these patients where I never even thought about this. And uh, I think I'll open my eyes. I think a negative CT with flank pain doesn't always mean nothing's wrong with the patient. It just means they don't have a kidney stone. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Green Chef. What is Green Chef? Well, Green Chef is a meal kit company. They make eating well easy with plans to fit every lifestyle. For me, I just need quick, easy, healthy meals to throw together that I can take to work or eat at home, and Green Chef makes it simple and quick. I save time and stay healthy. Those are two of my big priorities. They offer a big range of recipes to suit whatever food preferences you might have. Green Chef is the number one meal kit for eating well with any meal that works for you, not the other way around. Feel your best this summer with seasonal recipes featuring certified organic fruits and vegetables, organic cage-free eggs, and sustainably sourced seafood. Eat well at lunchtime, too, with their 10-minute lunches. Each week's menu includes two convenient low-prep and nutritious lunch recipes ready in just 10 minutes. No cooking required. Perfect for when you're on the go or pressed for time to get to an emerge shift. Cut down on meal prep with pre-portioned and prepped ingredients, including pre-measured sauces, spices, and dressings delivered right to your door. 
Go to greenchef.com slash emcases50 and use code emcases50 to get 50% off plus free shipping. Again, go to greenchef.com slash emcases50 and use code emcases50 to get 50% off plus free shipping. Green Chef, the number one meal kit for eating well. Hi folks, it's Lior Summer, your community emergency physician with some practical points on common ENT emergencies. Today, I wanted to talk ears. Let's take a case I saw a few months ago in my community emergency department. A 23-year-old woman presents with a one-week history of right ear pain. She had her fourth earring placed about three weeks ago, but opted for a stud in the upper part of her ear this time because she liked the looks of it. It was painful for a day or two after the piercing, but she said she felt fine after that. About a week ago, the pain came back as a dull ache, and she noticed some redness slowly spreading around the stud. She presented at a walk-in clinic and was diagnosed with a skin and soft tissue infection and started on cephalexin, 500 milligrams, four times a day, which she took for about two days. But despite the antibiotics, her ear became increasingly painful, swollen, and red. She came into your ED yesterday and was assessed by one of your colleagues and started on IV ceftriaxone and told to return the following day for a reassessment. When you see her, she tells you that she doesn't really feel much better. She doesn't see much change over the past three days, and it still hurts. She denies any fever or constitutional symptoms, and she's otherwise a totally healthy person. At triage, her vital signs are normal, and you take a look at her ear, and sure enough, the upper part is erythematous, swollen, though not really fluctuant, but it is significantly tender. You also note that the lobule, you know, the fleshy, squishy bit of the inferior aspect of the ear, is not at all erythematous. So what's the diagnosis? That's right. This woman has perichondritis of her ear, an infection of the cartilage. So why isn't she getting better despite being on antibiotics for three or four days? Part of that is probably because as a profession, we're fairly impatient and really Antibiotics take about three or four days to really see any noticeable effect on skin and soft tissue infections. But in her case, I would be concerned that her antimicrobial coverage is not really targeting the right organism. Whenever ear cartilage is infected, whether it's pericarditis on the outside of the ear or the external auditory canal, you really have to consider coverage for pseudomonas, which tends to live in this area. We think that about three quarters of infections of the cartilage of the ear are actually caused by pseudomonas. So when you choose your antibiotic agent, it's good to look at your local antibiogram. Now, thankfully, in the hospitals where I work, most pseudomonas cultured is still sensitive to Cipro, which in Canada is really the only anti-pseudomonal antibiotic that can be taken orally. There is some staph infection that causes perichondritis, so it would be reasonable to leave the patient on some kind of anti-staphylococcal agent as well. And what about perichondritis in kids? It definitely happens. And now there's reasonable evidence that children with perichondritis, ciprofloxacin is still a safe first-line agent. Now, back to our patient. So I started her on ciprofloxacin, I stopped her IV antibiotics and restarted her cephalexin and arranged for her to have an outpatient follow-up in our ENT clinic, which usually takes a little while. So I asked her to return to our emergency department in two or three days because the weekend was coming up and I didn't think that any follow-up would really happen any time before that. I also took her piercing out because I thought this would be a presumed nidus of infection. She comes back two days later and now she feels that her pain has improved but her ear has become more swollen. She's still systemically well, but she has a distinctly fluctuant mass on the anterior aspect of her upper pinna. So she's correctly diagnosed with an abscess of her pinna. What are you gonna do next? So if you have an ENT consultant who's available to see the patient in a reasonably expeditious way, that would be totally reasonable. But it's really important that the patient shouldn't wait for days to have a definitive procedure done. What's the problem? Well, remember that cartilage is avascular and is totally dependent on the surrounding skin and soft tissue for its nutrient supply. 
Once an abscess forms, it'll separate the cartilage from its surrounding soft tissue, and it could result in necrosis of the cartilage. The patient is likely to end up with a folded up, deformed pinna known as the dreaded cauliflower ear. The same is, of course, true for pinna hematomas from trauma common in rugby players and boxers. So yeah, these need urgent drainage. And the issue is that unlike other abscesses or hematomas, drainage is not quite enough because, again, the cartilage is dependent on that skin for its nutrients. And so the skin has to be re-approximated back to the cartilage after all the fluid is drained out. This can be done either by suturing two dental rolls, one on either side of the pinna, to apply enough pressure to close that potential space, or by applying a tight conforming dressing to the ear using Vaseline gauze and cling to hold it tight against the skull until the patient can see an otolaryngologist for definitive follow-up. So remember, three take-home points from today's quick hit. Cover pseudomonas in soft tissue infections of the ear, ensure good and early drainage for pinna abscesses or hematomas, and always reapproximate the skin over cartilaginous infections. Thanks again for having me on EM Cases. Bye for now. Three excellent take-home points on perichondritis and auricular abscess. Thank you so much, Dr. Summer. Now, before we go on to our next quick hit, I've got some listeners that have asked me about the EM Cases Learning System and what it is. So the EM Cases Learning System is what we give you all for free so that you can maximize your learning and retention of the key points on EM Cases to enhance your practice. The EM Cases Learning System is comprised of podcasts, show notes, videos, email blasts, and quizzes. And it's all based on the leading learning theory of spaced repetition multimodal learning. So let's break that down. Spaced repetition means getting the info spaced apart over a few days. So you listen to a podcast, then a few days later you read the show notes, then you might have signed up for the Just for Nuggets emails where you get the show notes broken down into chunks delivered to your inbox over a week or so. Then you watch a rapid review video on the same topic and take a quiz in our quiz vault. So that's the spaced repetition part. It's also the multimodal part. So while many of us think that we learn best from one medium or another, that's actually been shown to be a myth. We learn best from multiple media. So again, podcasts, show notes, videos, and quizzes. You can add in there infographics that you can find on our Instagram feed as well. So that's the EM Cases learning system free open access medical education or FOMED based on spaced repetition, multimodal learning so that the stuff sticks and so you can take better care of your patients. If you're missing any of these, just head over to the EM Cases website and hit the red subscribe button to get your Just the Nuggets, your Q&A Pearl of the Week, and you can sign up for the Quiz Vault there too. All right, next up we have Suzanne Shu who you might remember from our recent episode on bronchiolitis. During the same recording session, I asked her to update us on MAG for pediatric asthma. This one's great. And now for the best of University of Toronto Emergency Medicine. For this EM quick hit, I have the mighty return of Dr. Suzanne Shu who is a world-renowned researcher in pediatric emergency respiratory illnesses. And one of the questions that seems to come up in kids who are really sick with asthma in the emergency department is should they receive IV magnesium? Now, we know that IV magnesium is cheap, and it seems to be part of the so-called kitchen sink that we throw at kids with severe asthma in the emergency department after we've tried bronchodilators and steroids and nothing seems to be working. But I want to ask you, Dr. Shu, should we be using IV magnesium? What's the evidence for it? And what are the advantages, disadvantages? What's your personal cl clinical practice and what would you recommend to the emergency medicine world in terms of IV magnesium for severe asthma in the emergency department? 
So IV magnesium is actually recommended as part of the pediatric uh, acute asthma guidelines. It is recommended by just about all of the guidelines, actually, not only in Canada, but also in the U.S. and, uh, and overseas. Specifically, it's recommended for refractory asthma, so kids that have failed the usual therapy. So, Anton, you're asking, should you give this treatment? Well, why not? It is inexpensive, and it is, generally speaking, safe. But I think we should also think about what is the benefit of IV magnesium and what evidence do we have that it actually works. I think as a general rule, you know, ideally speaking, whenever we give medications, we kind of trust that they have been shown to be beneficial. And there are definitely some medicines that you and I use that may not have had that luxury of evidence. And I think IV magnesium is one of them. So IV magnesium, it's not the most potent bronchodilator. It's a relatively weak bronchodilator. It has its disadvantages. So one disadvantage is, so first of all, we do not like to, unlike our adult colleagues, we do not like to poke kids. And establishing an IV is not always successful and it can be distressing and respiratory distress can get worse as a result of them protesting and fighting and showing their autonomy. So that can be an issue. It does have potential for hypotension because magnesium sulfate is a vasodilator in addition to being bronchodilator. So although most physicians are not very worried about it, so in the literature, it's published that about 6 to 8% of patients on MacSelf actually develop hypotension. I personally find that a little bit high, and it can definitely be prevented by IV boluses prior to therapy. But it is still a concern, and it requires that the infusion be given over 20 or 30 periods of time. You need experienced nurses that are experienced in these infusion protocols. The patient needs to be very carefully monitored during the infusion and and thereafter. It is labor-intensive. So in terms of resources, you know, if you have a nurse for that particular drug, they cannot do other things around the busy ED. So that can be a problem. And I think that the big problem is that the evidence of benefit for magnesium sulfate is really very suboptimal. There have been a total of 115 patients in three randomized trials to date. The last one was done in 2000, so 22 years ago. One had about 30 kids, another one had 30 kids, and the last one had about 50-something kids. The first two were very positive in terms of decreasing hospitalizations after magnesium sulfate, very, very positive, but they only had patients over the age of six uh, that could do pulmonary function tests, which was the primary outcome for these studies. The, the third study was, was completely negative. It showed no benefit. There have been several other small studies that have looked at various unvalidated clinical scores at one hour, for example, after administration, and they were uh, some of them were, in fact, d- did show benefit. But there is not a single study that has actually looked at incremental benefit of magnesium sulfate compared to no magnesium sulfate at the time when you and I make decisions to hospitalize these patients, which is usually about three or four hours later after you have given corticosteroids, multiple doses of bronchodilators, ipratropium, etc., etc. So the evidence is is very, very highly limited. And what happens in practice is because of this lack of evidence, the physicians are very concerned about, are these patients going to come back? If I give them myself and then they improve and then the child may come back and they may get worse and so they may crash somehow at home or whatever. There is all these visions that people have and a lot of concern. So they more or less semi-automatically admit these patients, irrespective of the response. So we actually published a study a couple of years ago where we looked at, this was not an RCT, of this was done in the context of, uh, of another RCT of inhaled magnesium, which was completely ineffective. 
but about a quarter of the patients did get IV magnesium because they did they were sick. And we looked at the probability of hospitalization with magnesium and without magnesium adjusted for various risk factors called founders, you know, like severity of asthma. So we had PRAM scores before and after, you know, previous ICU admits, et cetera, et cetera. And we found that after you adjust for all this, the odds of hospitalization with magnesium were about nine to 10 times higher compared to no magnesium. And we followed that up with a survey, an international survey actually, asking the physicians, does the order to give magnesium prompt also their decision to admit? And the answer was yes. And one of the biggest reasons for this was actually the fact that the evidence is just not there, that they can safely send them home. So yes, so to answer your question, should you give magnesium sulfate? There is no good reason not to, if you feel clinically speaking, the child is sick enough to actually require it clinically. So if they, for those of you that are familiar with the PRAM scores, if you have a PRAM score that's approaching eight, out of 12 points, which means that the child has usually in some compromise in oxygenation, poor air entry, audible wheeze, a lot of neck retractions, sometimes scalene muscle retractions. And this is despite all the other things you have mentioned. So this is a refractory asthma. I think it's very reasonable to give, give the magnesium sulfate. I think the other important thing is when you give magnesium, because it's usually given late. It's given like after three hours, you know, people kind of say, well, what else shall I do? He hasn't responded. Let's give him magnesium. And then there is no time left in the ED to watch them. So then they get admitted. That's another reason why. Because half-life of Maxself is about an hour and a half or so, roughly speaking. So you have to give it at least two hours, three hours to, to observe them. And if you don't have that luxury, that's another problem. So it should be given about an hour after you have given your initial round of bronchodilators. Or if the child is really ill, like they have a pram of 11, when they come to the ED, I would just give them Maxalf right away. So I think there's no question that in a critically ill patient, it should be given. Whether it works is another story. You know, we do use medications that we have very little evidence for. Wonderful. So... Despite the guidelines recommending IV magnesium, we're not saying don't use it. No. We're saying for those critically ill patients, yes, use it. For the patients that after one hour of full therapy with everything else, mm -hmm. that they still have significant respiratory distress, low oxygen saturations, then it's reasonable to give. It's reasonable to give with a grain of salt at the back of your mind whether or not it will work. And that if we're going to be strictly evidence-based about it, there really is not enough evidence out there to support what the guidelines are telling us. Uh, that is, yes, uh, there is not. There is definitely not enough evidence, no. Now, having said that, if, the, if you do give it and you can watch the child and the child is fine and stays that way, then there is some evidence from the U.S. actually based on a very large database of patients that, and we are talking about somewhere around 60,000 patients, that the kids that were sent home on magnesium, which happens in about 10% of those that do get magnesium, actually get discharged. Those that do get sent home tend to return at a rate possibly lower than those that do not. So the evidence, which is limited because it's, you know, it's retrospective, but it, that does tell us that the patients tend not to crash and they do well if they truly respond and they are sent home after IV magnesium. So if the child does respond, there's absolutely no reason to admit them. Hopefully it'll encourage us to, to discharge those patients if at all possible. I just love hearing from a true expert who's a world-renowned researcher and has a wealth of practical experience. So thank you so much, Dr. Shu. Next up, we have Mr. ECG Cases, Dr. Jesse McLaren, who, by the way, is in the midst of developing a new ECG interpretation course called HEARTS. So keep your ears and eyes open for the HEARTS course. 
and we'll be updating you in the EM Cases newsletter that you can sign up for by hitting the subscribe button on the EM Cases site. There's a patient in the waiting room with chest pain, and you're given their ECG to sign. What do you look for? For decades, the answer has been very simple. STEMI criteria. That is, ST elevation in at least two contiguous leads of at least a millimeter and greater than V2 and V3, and in the absence of left bundle branch block and left ventricular hypertrophy. If there's no STEMI criteria, then you simply write STEMI negative and the patient waits to be seen. This is based on a paradigm that equates STEMI criteria with acute coronary occlusion. That is, if the ECG has STEMI criteria, then the patient must have an acutely occluded artery. And if the ECG doesn't meet STEMI criteria, then the patient must not have an acute coronary occlusion. But a few months ago, the American College of Cardiology published its expert consensus on the evaluation of chest pain in the ED, and it dropped a bombshell. It said STEMI ECG criteria will miss a significant minority of patients who have acute coronary occlusion. This statement is remarkable for three reasons. First, it separates the test, STEMI ECG criteria, from the underlying pathology, acute coronary occlusion in the patient. Just like the white blood cell count is neither sensitive nor specific for appendicitis, STEMI criteria is neither sensitive nor specific for acute coronary occlusion. There are well-known false positive STEMIs, like early repolarization or pericarditis, but much more dangerous are the false negatives, when patients have acute coronary occlusion, but their ECG doesn't meet STEMI criteria. In the case of appendicitis, it would be ridiculous to deny abdominal imaging for patients with migratory right lower quadrant pain and positive McBurney and Robson sign just because their white blood cell count is normal. Yet for MI, the STEMI paradigm is based on denying emergent angiography for patients with ischemic chest pain if their ECG doesn't meet STEMI criteria. Now the ACC has acknowledged that STEMI criteria and acute coronary occlusion are not the same, and warned that applying STEMI criteria will miss acute coronary occlusion. Secondly, the expert consensus goes on to list a number of ECG signs to look for so we don't miss acute coronary occlusion. Some of these have previously been described as STEMI equivalents, but this term perpetuates the false STEMI dichotomy. Instead, the ACC describes these as ECG findings consistent with acute coronary occlusion. These include hyperacute T waves, which are broad and bulky and look inflated and are large relative to their QRS, mild ST elevation with reciprocal ST depression, like many inferior occlusion MIs, which might not meet STEMI criteria but have reciprocal change in AVL, anterior ST depression from posterior occlusion MI, De Winter sign, which is upsloping ST depression rising into a hypercute T wave, and left bottle branch block or paste rhythm with a Smith modified Strabosa criteria. None of these meet STEMI criteria, yet all are consistent with acute coronary occlusion. The third remarkable thing about the cardiology expert consensus is that it reflects the work of emergency physicians like Dr. Smith and Myers, who have developed evidence based ECG interpretation for acute coronary occlusion and proposed a paradigm shift from STEMI to occlusion MI. The ACC statement on STEMI criteria missing acute coronary occlusion references a study by Smith and Myers published in the Journal of Emergency Medicine in 2021, which compares the STEMI paradigm with the paradigm of occlusion MI. They found that 40% of occlusion MIs didn't meet STEMI criteria and experienced preventable delay to perfusion. And a follow-up study showed that advanced ECG interpretation could identify these STEMI-negative occlusion MIs. So when you see a patient with chest pain, their ECG may or may not show STEMI criteria. But the real question is, does the patient have acute coronary occlusion? Thanks to the work of emergency physicians, we have advanced ECG interpretation to answer this question, which we can learn and apply in order to advocate for our patients as part of a paradigm shift from STEMI to occlusion MI. Visit the latest ECG cases blog and EM cases for 10 cases of chest pain, including false positive STEMI, STEMI negative occlusion MI, and other emergency causes of chest pain, so that you're better prepared to sign that ECG on your next shift. All right, before we give you our last EM quick hit, just a reminder to save the dates for online podcast camp, November 30th, December 7th, and December 14th. 
Tickets go on sale in August, so check the MCASE's website and podcastcamp.org. It's the only exhaustive boutique hands-on podcast production course for medical educators that's been running for more than five years now. And I'm so pleased to have a new instructor this year, Dr. Adam Thomas from the Internet Book of Critical Care podcast and CrackCast. And back for, I believe, the third time is the rebel himself, Dr. Salim Rizé. So check podcastcamp.org for details, please. All right, here's Justin Morgenstern on an update on steroids for pneumonia. All right, we've got to talk steroids for pneumonia. We previously covered this topic on Journal Jam number 17 with Andrew Morris, and at that time, despite a few promising results, we didn't think that steroids should be used routinely in community-acquired pneumonia. But all the trials at that point were pretty small and relatively low quality. And I mentioned that we knew a couple of large multi-center RCTs were underway. Well, a couple of those big trials have now been published and it might be time to change practice. The paper that I am sure everybody has heard about is Cape Cod, published just this month in the New England Journal of Medicine. It's a big multi-center trial out of France. They looked at 800 ICU patients with severe community-acquired pneumonia, and they randomized them to a hydrocortisone infusion or placebo. And I think everybody's heard about this trial because the results were huge, a 5% absolute decrease in mortality. It does not get any better than that. Now, of course, it's never that simple. This is a high-quality trial with excellent methodology, but it was stopped early, which tends to result in an overestimation of benefit. And it's important that we pay close attention to the exclusion criteria. Only about one in seven patients that they screened were actually eligible for the trial. Influenza patients were excluded, and that might be important because previous data has suggested harms from steroids and influenza. Aspiration pneumonia and anybody with fungal infections where TB were excluded. This doesn't apply to hospital-acquired pneumonia, and septic shock was also excluded. So this is a small subset of severe community-acquired pneumonia in ICU patients only, but for that population, the results look great. But if we started applying these results too loosely, if we got indication creep, the harm could easily start outweighing the benefit. Now, there was a second study published last year that nobody seems to talk about. The ESCAPE trial was also large, 600 patients, And it was also a multi-center placebo-controlled RCT looking at steroids in severe pneumonia in ICU patients. Now, it comes out of the VA system in the United States, so it's close to 100% males, but I don't know of any reason that steroids would have a sex-specific impact. The big difference, this trial was negative. No statistical difference in mortality. Now, I think there are two key EBM lessons to consider here before we get to our clinical takeaway. First, ESCAPE, the negative trial, was actually finished in 2016, and it took six years for it to get published. And then when it was published, no one talked about it. Cape Cod, the positive trial, was published in less than a year in a more prestigious journal, and within a day of publication, this paper was everywhere on social media. Everybody was talking about it. This is publication bias to a T. The positive trial gets so much more attention. But really, both of these trials are equally high quality, equally important. Your clinical practice should be equally shaped by both. But clinicians are way more likely to hear about Cape Cod, and that's a problem. EBM lesson number two, papers are never just positive or negative. We shouldn't interpret them based on their p-value. So although escape was statistically negative, the point estimate was for a 2% decrease in mortality in the steroid group. So it's quite possible that these two trials are saying the exact same thing. In fact, the 6% absolute benefit in Cape Cod just seems too big. We never see results 
that good, and trials stopped early do tend to overestimate results. So I imagine the real effect size is probably closer to the escape number, a 2 or 3% decrease in mortality, but that is still an important outcome. So what are our clinical takeaways? Well, first, there's still some uncertainty here. Please do not take this as a settled issue. Please do not be surprised if the next big trial comes out as negative because neither of these trials is definitive. But I think our best guess is that there is going to be a small mortality benefit here, and that matters. However, we know that steroids have lots of side effects, and that benefit could easily be wiped out by harm if we start using steroids in the wrong population. So for now, I'm following these studies pretty closely. For the average pneumonia patient, no steroids. For ICU patients with community-acquired pneumonia, not atypical pneumonia, not influenza, not aspiration, for those who don't have contraindications to steroids, then I will give a dose of steroids, or at least I will talk to my intensivist and see what they want. And that is practice changing. Well, that about wraps it up for this month's EM Quick Hits podcast. Here's a little review. Dr. Carr and I chatted about having renal infarct on your differential diagnosis for patients who present with renal colic and have a normal unenhanced CT because most of these will be thromboembolic and if you identify the renal infarct, you could save them from having a stroke down the road. Dr. Summer brilliantly reviewed perichondritis and auricular abscess and drove home three points and always reapproximate the skin over infections of the cartilage to avoid the dreaded cauliflower ear. Dr. Shu told us about the evidence for MAG-SOLF in pediatric asthma and that it is really weak, but we should still probably consider giving it in the really sick kids with like a PRAM score of 12 and also consider it early, like one hour after bronchodilators in kids with a PRAM score between 8 and 11. And for those kids, if they do get better after MAG, they don't necessarily need to be admitted just because they got MAG. Dr. McLaren beautifully went over the new ACC statement on chest pain and reminded us of all those findings on the ECG that are not STEMIs, but are indicative of occlusion MIs and should probably be considered for cath lab activation. And those are subtle ST elevation in the inferior leads with reciprocal change in AVL. Those are the modified Scarbosa criteria, hyperacute T waves, anterior ST depression or posterior occlusion MI, even if the posterior leads don't show ST elevation. And finally, the de Winter sign. And again, these should all be considered for cath lab activation. And lastly, Dr. Morgenstern reviewed the latest on steroids for pneumonia, which we should probably consider for community-acquired pneumonia in patients heading for the ICU. Until next time, take it easy.